Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Mike Severino, who's the CEO partner of Flagship Pioneering and the CEO of Tessera Therapeutics. Over his career, Mike's been involved with more than a dozen approved therapies, ranging from early R&D stages, bringing them all the way to market. And prior to joining Flagship Pioneering and Tessera, Mike was at AbbVie, where he was vice chairman and president responsible for research and development in the corporate strategy office. During his tenure at AbbVie, Mike oversaw a major shift into genomics, computational biology, and precision medicine that hopefully we're gonna talk about today. And prior to his time at AbbVie, Mike was Senior Vice President of Global Development and Chief Medical Officer at Amgen. So I think it's fair to say, Mike has been through a number of exciting times and technology shifts in therapy development. And we're gonna cover what, what Tessera does and some of the unique gene writing technology that they've developed and also hopefully get Mike's view on drug development and all the major changes over the last couple of decades. So Mike, welcome to the podcast and thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love to just start with Flagship Pioneering. Many of our listeners know about Flagship, but some don't. And you left your role as Vice Chairman and President of AbbVie, which I'm sure was an exciting and challenging role to become CEO partner at Flagship. I'd love to, if you could just talk me through this decision, what made you decide to make this pretty big shift at that point in your career? Well, there were a number of features, but when I think about it, you know, at the most basic level, it was a return to my roots as a physician scientist. I've been fortunate to be a part of some great companies, Merck, Amgen, AbbVie, had a remarkably rewarding career in drug discovery and development, been part of bringing a lot of new therapies to market, and that's all I ever really wanted to do in this business. But when I thought about my next chapter, I wanted to return to core innovation. I wanted to return to cutting edge science, and I wanted to be part of building something new. And that's always what has guided my career from the earliest days when when I left training at the Mass General Hospital and, and moved to Merck and was using the tools of genetics, genomics, expression profiling, functional genomics to try to aid drug discovery and development. And it's still what drives me today. So I started talking to the folks at Flagship and I realized uh, that they were like-minded in many ways. And it was just a remarkable organization and a remarkable opportunity. Flagship is unique in that it's not a, a venture capital firm in the way most people think of it. Flagship doesn't invest in other people's company and other uh, companies and other people's ideas. It conceives of companies itself. It funds them through their initial stages all the way through series A based on science that is done in its own labs and then brings in a, a broader group of investors to support and launch the company over time. And that allows for a number of unique advantages. First of all, there's, there's a relentless focus on innovation. So we're not interested in adjacencies. We're not interested in small incremental improvements. We're interested in, in wide open spaces and new fields where we think we can make a real difference in how, how medicine is practiced. Very much aligned with what I wanted to do. And it has a long-term focus. The focus is on building great companies. That's flagships focus. And people who come in to join these companies have that same focus. So there's that alignment. And that's something else that was very important to me. Being part of something that would grow over time, that had a real mission in the long term and could change the way medicine is practiced and bring new therapies forward where, quite frankly, they couldn't be imagined previously. What, what do you think it is that makes it hard for large pharma to, to create these kind of more, you know, less adjacent and more like totally left field breakthroughs or ideas? What is it about the, the structure or the incentives or, or something that makes it hard to do there? But, you know, repeatably, I'm not going to say easy to do because I'm sure there's a lot of smart people and hard work behind the scenes, but something about the structure of a company like Flagship allows you to do that repeatedly over, over decades in ways that other organizations can't. What, what do you think the big difference is? 
Well, the time constant is different in a large public company. So one needs to be thinking about, you know, earnings on a quarterly basis, you know, continually driving new approvals, label expansions, bringing new drugs to the market, certainly. But there's that focus not only on the long-term, but also on the near-term. And when one is truly innovating, sometimes you have to take a step back, look at the platform, invest in the platform, not just financially, but in terms of effort, in terms of intellectual firepower, intellectual capital, if you will, to try to create something that's totally different. And so you, you, you sort of take a step backwards, at least in the drug discovery and development timelines, to something that's very early, to create something that can really be game-changing in the future. And that's something that is just hard to do in much larger organizations. Yeah, it makes total sense. And and I guess one of the things that caught your attention pretty early on is is Tessera, which is a company that's focused on gene writing. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what gene writing is. How does it differ from gene editing, which is a term more people will probably be familiar with? And mm-hmm. we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast. So at Tessera, we are pioneering a technology that we call gene writing, as as you mentioned. And we use that term very intentionally. It's a term that that we developed. And we don't just use it to be different. We use it to broaden our focus and to make it clear what we're trying to do. Because the field of genetic medicine is in its infancy. And when a field is in its infancy, uh, it tends to be defined in a very fragmented way. And it tends to be defined by the tools people use. So today, if you think broadly about genetic medicine, and most people don't even think about it that way, they think about the individual applications, each field is defined by the tools that people are using. So if you use CRISPR-based systems to knock something out, you're an editor. And we can think about companies that fall into the gene editing space and, and what they do. If you try to deliver a transgene today through an AAV vector, most likely in the future through other means, you're a gene therapy company. We can think of a whole different category of companies and different comparables that are, that are gene therapy right. companies, and they go after different sorts of diseases. If you take cells out of the body and make complex manipulations, because today, up to the present, that's the only place where you can do that, and then you put them back in the body, you're a cell-based therapy company. Right. And each of those is thought of as a different field today, and each of those is thought of as having a different set of comparables, right? But the underlying aim in all of those applications is really the same. It's to deliver new instructions through DNA, which after all is the code of life, to do one of two things, to either restore function where function is missing or impaired, or to deliver new capabilities such as cancer fighting capabilities. And if we had a broad toolkit that could do all of those things, We can really unify that space into what we think of as genetic medicine and what we think of as gene writing. And if we have that definitive genetic genomic toolkit, we have tremendous opportunities. And and we have even more opportunities if we take that and couple it to a strong focus on in vivo delivery. So we're developing not only what we believe is the definitive genomic toolkit that allows us to make whatever change we need in the human genome to address disease, whether that's you know, change any one letter into any other, correct a SNP, for example, a short insertion or deletion, write longer segments, an exon, a whole gene. We're developing that capability, but we're coupling that with proprietary in vivo delivery capabilities. So we can do all of this in living systems and ultimately in patients. Because if you can't get your toolkit to the patient in a way that's going to make an impact in a living system, in a, in a, in a living patient, you're going to be very limited in your ability to impact disease. And so we think both components of that are absolutely essential. And we focus on both components, the toolkit and the delivery here at Tessera. 
It would be great to start with a toolkit. So what's hard to do, thinking about the whole industry, what's hard to do today and, and what's relatively easy to do? I think people know base single base changes is something. If we if we take the delivery side out of it, which <laughs> there's a big asterisk, single base changes in a small set of tissues, but what's relatively easy to do for the field and what are the big leaps or hard things to do that you all are focused on? Well, today, if one thinks about gene editing systems, it's it's relatively easy to knock genes out. It's it's not a trivial endeavor. It still takes a lot of skill and expertise, and one has to couple it with with delivery. But we can knock things out. And and if if one thinks about it, that's what CRISPR based systems are good at. Right? So CRISPR is the workhorse for gene editing today, or CRISPR based systems. And CRISPR is essentially a finely tuned molecular pair of scissors. It's a bacterial immune system. It it evolved over over billions of years to identify invading DNA and to cut it, to inactivate it. So it's quite good at that. And the re-engineering of CRISPR in a research setting as a gene editing tool is a remarkable accomplishment. It's changed the way we think about studying human disease. But in vivo, in living systems, and ultimately in patients, it, it essentially does what it evolved to do. It turns things off. So, so that's what folks are good at today. And that's most of the initial applications. It's much harder to write DNA. It's much harder to change one letter into any other letter. And it's harder still to change longer segments of DNA, to write many base pairs, to write a whole exon, to write a whole gene into the genome. And those are the technologies that we're focused on. So we can certainly knock genes out too, but we can, we can handle those other applications. We can change any letter in the genome to any other without limitation. We can write longer segments. We can write exon length segments with single nucleotide accuracy. So we could write, for example, a new exon into the native architecture of a gene, and we can write new genes into the genome. And, and we can even multiplex that. So we can write in one location in the genome and edit, or we call it rewriting in other locations in a single step, which has tremendous potential applications. For example, for cell-based therapies, next-generation CAR-Ts, where you might want to write in a CAR cassette and you know, perhaps knock out a resistance mechanism, send some survival signal, augment some effector mechanism, so we can put all of these types of changes together. Do you have a sense of how many diseases are in the bucket of you need to knock out some gene to help versus how many are actually in this other bucket where you need to rewrite or, or add something in? Is that 80-20, 20-80? Do you have a sense of what yeah. that's like? I mean, it's hard to give you a quantitative sense, but the, the, the large majority of opportunities require more than just knocking out a gene, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we see a handful of opportunities from, from first generation of, of gene editing companies and, and they can achieve some remarkable results, but it's a relatively you know, limited set of, of applications. When you can write DNA and when you're not limited in the messages you can write, the aperture opens up just enormously. So one can think about addressing, you know, virtually any genetic disease, so monogenic disease, and even the risk factors for complex disease. So, you know, for example, with our platform in the liver, if we just look at rewriting, just making short changes in the liver, there are roughly 550,000 patients living in major markets with diseases that could be addressed. So a true correction to wild type with our technology. And just to put oh. that in perspective, that's, that's roughly eight times the size of the cystic fibrosis population, which is obviously a medically and, and commercially important indication. So eight times that size with, with this technology. And that doesn't even begin to look at complex disease, so common diseases. There are more than 10 million patients 
living with common diseases, cardiovascular disease, NASH, and others with risk factors that are expressed in the liver that could be modified with this technology. So the amount of opportunity, the scope of the opportunity is, is just enormous and, and essentially eventually becomes all of medicine over time. Yeah, let, let's talk about the liver and the delivery challenge. I, I spent some time many years ago working in a nanoparticle lab, and I think you all, ha- this, this is part of your delivery stack and technology. Could you talk a little bit about why, why the liver is often the first organ that most gene writing or gene therapy or gene editing companies go after? And, and what is it that makes the other organs hard? And then on, on, on the solution side, what do you all what do you all do to try to solve that delivery problem to unlock things like the brain and, and other harder to reach organs? Certainly. So we have a focus on lipid nanoparticle delivery for a number of reasons. One, it's, it, it's non-viral, so it avoids many of the pitfalls of viral-based systems, and it's engineerable. It's both scalable, and, and we see the scalability with the remarkable progression of the mRNA vaccines for COVID, scaling from you know, essentially nothing to, you know, a billion doses around the planet. So it's just, just remarkable how robust and scalable that platform is. It, it avoids problems with immunogenicity to the vector, either pre-existing or, or after a first administration. So it's redosable. It can be dosed to effect. So there are many advantages of, of, of lipid nanoparticles. And so we're essentially extending that technology that was used to deliver COVID vaccines around the planet and adapting it to the systems that, that we're using and to access the, the tissues that we're trying to get to. And so as you point out, liver is often the first place where folks go and we can go to liver, but we're, we, can, we can deliver to other tissues as well. But one of the reasons why liver is the obvious choice is the liver's physiologic role is to take up substances. It, it is the filtering system in many ways of, of the body for foreign particles and it takes up lipids in particular. So LMPs can naturally go there and there are natural uptake mechanisms that get LMPs there. And it is the first uh, organ system to have convincing demonstration of delivery of lipid nanoparticles systemically. And so it's an obvious place to go. There's also an enormous amount of opportunity there in terms of diseases where the, where the cause of mutations or risk factors are expressed in the liver. So it's an obvious place to go. You have to be good at it, right? So even though lipid nanoparticles can go to the liver, there's a lot of subtlety. You have to have a, a lipid nanoparticle or an LMP. I'll just start using that abbreviation because I'll slip into it anyway. And that that is tolerable. That delivers the payload, you know, with the correct efficiency is broadly distributed through the liver. And so it takes some skill, and we built that skill. But it's something that the field can generally do. Targeting other organ systems is much more challenging, and we've developed proprietary technology where our LMPs can deliver to hematopoietic stem cells in, in their native niche. So without the need for chemotherapy conditioning or without the need for mobilizing stem cells from the marrow, which is, which is really important because that opens up possibilities for in vivo treatments of diseases like sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease is the most common lethal genetic disease on the planet. It affects 150,000 patients in the US and Europe, but 6 million patients around the world. Wow. And there are genetic medicine approaches to sickle cell that are advancing through development and, and the regulatory process, but they're all ex vivo approaches. So you take cells out of the body, make whatever alteration 
one makes. And you typically can't make a true correction to wild type, but there are other approaches that are used. But then to re-administer those cells, it takes a stem cell transplant. So it takes fully myeloablative chemotherapy conditioning, uh, which is not trivial. Um, and it's not trivial in terms of health resource utilization, the number of advanced centers and the number of monitored beds that it takes to deliver that. But it's also not trivial in terms of the morbidity associated with that procedure. And in fact, a large proportion of sickle cell patients aren't even candidates for that sort of therapy because of associated comorbidities from their disease. Right. So it's a great thing to cure any patient of sickle cell disease. But it's not an approach, in our view, that is broadly applicable, certainly not to 150,000 patients in the US and Europe and not to 6 million patients around the world. And so the lipid nanoparticle delivery that we're developing allows us through simple IV infusion to target with high efficiency delivery to hematopoietic stem cells in their native niche. And we also have editing constructs, rewriting constructs that can rewrite the sickle mutation of wild type with remarkably high efficiency. We have data from CD34 cells, so progenitor cells from sickle patients, where we can rewrite with high efficiency and put them into culture and, and produce erythroblasts. And 98% of erythroblasts have at least one allele corrected, and 70% have both alleles corrected. And if you look at the hemoglobin that's produced in those culture systems, it's virtually all normal hemoglobin, as you'd expect, so greater than 98% normal hemoglobin. So if you think about the delivery that I described and that rewriting efficiency, when you put those together and we're, we're in the process of assembling that whole package, it makes a true correction of sickle cell disease to wild type through a simple IV infusion a very real possibility. And we think that would be completely game-changing. So I think that's a good illustration of the way in which yes. you know the toolkit the the ability to make whatever change we need in the genome and delivery can work together to open up some enormous opportunities. And, no, and I we, totally we, agree. Yeah. And we're going beyond that. So we, we also have the ability to deliver to immune cells, T cells and others with high efficiency. And so in the same way we're assembling what it takes to make an in vivo correction of sickle cell, we're working towards the in vivo generation of CAR Ts. Um, so instead of taking cells out of the body, manufacturing them, giving chemotherapy conditioning and putting them back in, again, trying to transform this to a simple IV infusion. And so if we think about the lipid nanoparticles, for, for people who aren't watching the video, I'm making a circular particle with my hands. I, don't, I think they probably are circular. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but they, the they cargo, are. <laughs> they are good. The cargo you're delivering, I guess it could be something like a CRISPR-Cas system, but actually you all, I understand, use a slightly different mobile element, mobile element-based system, right? And because... What you described earlier of adding in a gene and making corrections at the same time doesn't sound like something that is that I'm aware of it being very easy to do with some of the existing CRISPR systems. So what's the cargo that you're delivering in that nanoparticle shuttle, for lack of a better metaphor? So in our system, the lipid nanoparticle has just two RNAs in it. One is an mRNA that encodes the gene writer. And I'll say more about the gene writers in, in a second. And the second is, is a template. RNA that provides the instructions. So we are using RNA as the template, but we're writing DNA. And so with just those two RNAs, we're making permanent changes to the genome, including writing whole length gene segments in the genome, which to our knowledge is, is a first to permanently modify DNA, make whole gene insertions with all RNA compositions. And the platform really 
dates back to the earliest days of Tesra. And that process that I described where flagship conceives of companies, funds them initially, and then ultimately launches them and brings in additional investors, management team, and built in a fully enabled company around it. And the idea was, was remarkably simple, right? So we wanted to build a definitive genomic toolkit to write DNA into the genome. And so you know, CRISPR had set off a revolution in gene editing. So CRISPR was a molecular pair of scissors, which was very good at cutting DNA. And so Tesra started with the, with the very simple question, what if nature has already invented the tools to write DNA? And, and the answer is, of course, that it has, or I wouldn't be here speaking to you about it. <laughs> and, and that answer lies in a family of genes that are called mobile genetic elements. And, and mobile genetic elements are evolutionarily ancient. They date back literally billions of years to the earliest forms of life. And they evolved over those billions of years to do exactly what we're describing, to make copies of themselves and to insert themselves into genomes. And they're remarkably efficient in doing this. In fact, um, they're, they're so productive at doing this that they're the most abundant family of genes across the tree of life, and they outpace their nearest rival by a large margin. And half of our DNA as humans is derived from sequences that come from mobile genetic elements. So, and, and, and they're core drivers of evolution. We, we wouldn't exist without them. And so what we've done is harness their power and adapted it and, and created gene writers, which are essentially engineered mobile genetic elements. We have, we have two broad families. The one that we've been talking about up to this point is our RNA gene writers, which is based on the biology of retrotransposons. These are these RNA-based elements. They write DNA, but through an RNA intermediate. We also have a limb of our platform uh, that's based on another family of mobile genetic elements that use DNA, that directly insert DNA. And those are our DNA gene writers. And so both are, are part of our focus, but there's remarkable power in the all RNA compositions of the RNA gene writer platform. And that couples with that LMP delivery that we've talked about. So that, that's a, a major area of focus for us right now. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to dive more into this. So I, I did my PhD in rare developmental disorders and I actually focused on the non-coding genome and I learned pretty early on to my surprise how much of the non-coding genome was old dead insertions from retroviruses uh, from transposons over many millions of years but also occasionally they would plonk a change into the middle of an important gene and, and cause a disorder and I'm I know they have characteristic sites where they insert can you talk a little bit about how how you can guide the uh, mobile genetic element to insert the gene in the right place do you set up a safe harbor of some sort where the new copy of the gene or exon mm -hmm. might sit in. I imagine there's a lot of interesting molecular biology and engineering that's gone on to use that natural tool and then engineer it into something you can control effectively. Yeah. So we, we use different approaches. We started off the creation of our platform with a bioinformatics search across trillions of base pairs of available sequence data, looking for the signature of mobile genetic elements and, and in the case of the RNA gene writer platform, retrotransposons. Then we studied them computationally and sourced the different activities that drive their biology from across the tree of life. So retrotransposons make copies of themselves, integrate them into the genome through a mechanism that's called target-primed reverse transcription or TPRT. So target-primed reverse transcription has four basic steps. RNA binding, DNA binding, DNA nicking, and reverse transcription. And each of those functions is 
accomplished by a different protein domain that you can think of as an engineerable module. So in this bioinformatics search, we looked at a wide range of these different domains and we recombined them in large numbers and really enormous numbers. We looked at, you know, more than a thousand different domains. We combined them in different ways with different linkers and different template architectures to come up and then tested them experimentally to come up with gene writers that were optimized either to make these short changes. So for example, to fix a SNP, to make longer changes, to insert an exon into a programmable locus or to write a whole gene into the genome. And so there are different ways in which we guide them. Sometimes the instructions for the site are contained within the RNA. Sometimes we can graft on a new DNA binding domain to retarget them, for example, to target to a safe, har- safe harbor. And we can use different combinations of these. So we optimize different gene writers for different tasks and use different approaches to guide them. Uh, but at the end of the day, when we have a gene writer, it can be reused by changing the template, by changing the instructions. So if we have a gene writer that's optimized to fix a SNP, we can have it fix a different SNP in a different location merely by changing the instructions. So they become truly programmable in, in a way that hasn't, hasn't been the case in therapeutics up to the present. Yeah, that's amazing. What a great, what a great explanation. It sounds like a pretty interesting search process. Did that take a couple of years at the beginning of heads down time to really get to the bottom of that core technology, I guess? Well, it, it, it certainly took considerable effort. It, we, we made remarkably rapid progress. I mean, the company was founded in 2018. And so we're wow. sitting here in 2023. So five years later. So everything that I'm describing essentially happened in that five year period. You know, we, we move very, very quickly from a bioinformatics search to those broad screening efforts, to experimental validation, to, you know, in vitro testing of these systems, testing in, in, in cell lines, testing in primary cells, moving into animal models of disease. So murine models first, but we now have data in non-human primates for some of the important limbs of our platform. So we've made that progression very, very rapidly. And today, we have evidence of, of efficacy in a number of clinically relevant disease models, a number in mirroring systems, some of which we just presented at ASGCT just, just at the end of last week, and have already moved into non-human primates, rewriting in a clinically relevant locus with high efficiency in, in NHPs. And that's important because in what we do, preclinical data, particularly NHP data, translates with very high efficiency into the clinic, very high probability into the clinic. You know, in drug discovery and development, we're we're all sort of used to having a very skeptical sort of cynical view of preclinical models of disease because they're so often wrong, but we're using models in a completely different way here. We're not trying to find the cause of some genetic disease. We're not trying to find the cause of sickle cell disease or any other condition we try to treat. We know what that is unambiguously, right? And that's where models lead us astray. What we're using the models to determine is whether we can deliver efficiently and whether the cargo works in a living system, ultimately in a non-human primate, in the same way we'd expect it to based on all the in vitro work, cell line work, and murine work. And when the answer to those questions is yes, that translates with a very high efficiency into the clinic. We would estimate at least 70%. It's probably higher, but you know, 70% is pretty high. We try to be yeah. conservative. And, and that's significant because typically in drug discovery and development, you don't have 70% certainty around an efficacy signal until you get to a phase two clinical trial. 
So for genetic medicine, you can think of these NHP studies as the functional equivalent of a phase two study in terms of what it tells you um, about your likelihood of success. So in that five-year period, we've made some remarkable progress. Yeah, and, and you mentioned some of the work that you presented at ASGCT. I, I think that so there's a couple different diseases that it sounds like you could be applying this to pretty rapidly. PKU, alpha-1, antitrypsin deficiency, sickle cell, as well as CAR-T engineering, right? Can you talk a little bit about what, what that latest presentation was and where do you think you're going to see the first major impacts over the next couple of years on, on getting this into clinical trials or, or into the uh, hands of patients? Well, certainly we're, we're working on all of those applications and, and more. In fact, at ASGCT last week, we presented, uh, we had a number of presentations, in fact, so I'll just summarize across them. But we presented data in a number of disease models. We, we presented data in a model of a disease, phenylketonuria or PKU, which is a disorder of phenylene metabolism, phenylalanine metabolism, rather, which causes dramatically elevated levels of phenylalanine more than tenfold above normal and 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 levels of phenylalanine that high are directly neurotoxic so in a murine model that bears the same mutation as patients with that disease we showed that we can correct it with high efficiency and that completely normalizes phenylalanine so phenylalanine levels as i said are more than tenfold elevated we get a reduction all the way to normal when when we correct cells in 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 this animal model and in fact any gene writer construct that corrects more than about 10% of liver cells completely normalizes the phenotype. And we're correcting 40% or more wow. with a single IV infusion. We've taken that and extended it from murine systems into non-human primates, where we're showing clinically relevant levels of rewriting in non-human primates at that same locus and, and correcting up to 40, 45% of cells with the lower end of that distribution, well above that 10% putative curative threshold. And so that's part of the power that I'm describing of moving from murine systems into non-human primates. So that's a disease that we think holds great promise. And there are very limited therapies for patients with severe forms of that disease. They are put on very restricted diets, highly restricted medical diets. There are biologics that, that they can take, but they're cumbersome, poorly tolerated for many patients, have have challenges with infusion reactions up to and including anaphylaxis in a, in a not trivial number of patients. And even with that, they can't get to normal. You know, the goal is to get them to something that's three, four, sort of five times normal. But truly normalizing these patients with a one-time therapy would, would, you know, be a game changer. We also showed data in an animal model of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is a disorder that most commonly affects the lungs. It leads to progressive and early onset of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. So many people think of it as a pulmonary disease, but the protein that's deficient is made in the liver. And there's also a liver phenotype for a subset of patients because the mutation that leads to alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency causes a misfolded form of the protein that's non-functional, but it also aggregates. And those aggregates can be toxic to hepatocytes to liver cells. And so we show data where we rewrote that to the wild type form, increased circulating alpha-1 levels in a murine model, and reduced the aggregates that were present in the liver on histology in just short-term therapy or short-term observation. It's a one-time treatment. And are going to continue to look at longer-term effects over time. Um, so that holds real promise. 
sickle cell disease, I, I already pointed to a, a number of the data points that we've generated. We updated on, on sickle cell disease, only our ability to correct that mutation, but delivery efficiency to hematopoietic stem cells, that's a really exciting area we're working on. And there's a whole range of cancer applications. If, if we take this technology and we use it to write a carcassette into, into human T cells, we can show that we can create CAR Ts, that we can put them in a mouse xenograft model that they control tumor. And then separately, we can show that we can multiplex that technology with the rewriting that I described. So if you think about trying to create a next generation CAR T therapy, you can write in a carcassette. Maybe you want to knock out some resistance mechanism. Maybe you want to knock out PD1. Maybe you want to send some survival signal augment some effector mechanism. That's going to be particularly important when one thinks about moving into solid tumors, CAR-T therapy, where I think the field generally believes that it's going to take more advanced uh, manipulations, more you know, highly modified immune cells. People use the acronym armored cars of, of a pun you know, to get into that space. And this technology has tremendous potential there. So we're advancing across a wide range of, of, of disease areas and disease targets. And we're building a very broad pipeline. So one of the things that's important to us is, is the breadth of our platform, because we think that's, that's the best way to have a big impact. That's the best way to make sure that we're not limited by the tools that we have at our disposal, that we can go after whatever disease we need. And part of that is not focusing to exclusion on a single lead. So rather than picking one lead at the expense of all others, we're going to advance a broad pipeline across a number of areas like the ones that I described. So think of a couple of liver programs, for example, approaches aimed at in vivo cure of sickle cell disease and cancer applications, you know, roughly in parallel so that we can have a broad push into the clinic in, in the near term. Is there anything that needs to happen to make that transition from the murine or non-human primate models to start to move into healthy volunteer or, you know, early or early patient studies, or is it just time and you need to progress the, the technology through to humans in the next couple of years? Well, we think we have identified the gene writers that it'll take to do that work and the delivery systems. So in some cases, we're assembling all of the components in the areas that I described in stem cell biology, in in vivo CAR-T production. One needs to do the formulation work to get something that's ready to go into a human as opposed to, you know, a preclinical model of disease. And one needs to, to do the, 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 you know, preclinical safety assessments and, and the other work that is important to support either an IND or a clinical trials application. So all that's going on in our shop and we're moving towards the clinic, uh, you know, in the near future. What's that transition like going from a really technology preclinical focus to keeping that core, but then adding on all of the clinical development and, and eventually commercial team? I know you've done this two or three times in a large pharma context. What, what's the same? What's different? And what is that transition like for you as a CEO and leader? Yeah. Well, one needs to build new capabilities, expand capabilities. And one of the things that we've done at Tessera is we, we've really built a fully enabled company. In other words, we're not just a platform company. We are a platform company, but we're a platform company that will produce products. So we've invested in the preclinical development, in the CMC expertise we need to formulate LMPs so that they deliver with high efficiency and, and, and excellent tolerability, which, as I said, takes 
a significant amount of skill and we have a very experienced team uh, that's leading that work. We have both uh, clinical development leaders and regulatory leaders with tremendous experience uh, in genetic medicine, in the production of CAR-Ts that have brought therapies to market. So we have that, that knowledge base, that we have that experience within the company. And so it really is an end-to-end build-out of the capabilities it needs to be not just a, a clinical company, but ultimately a company that brings therapies to, to patients. And so you know, it helps that we have folks who've, who, who have done this before. We have people who've delivered novel LMP platforms all the way to commercial products. We have people on our teams who've developed genetic medicines and brought them all the way to the market, CAR-Ts and brought them all the way to the market multiple times. And so that, that experience along with the talent, the commitment to our mission is what it's going to take to guide us along that journey. Amazing. I was. I wanted to just ask your perspective more broadly on some of the big technology shifts and changes. While you were at, at Advi in particular, I think there was a big organizational shift that you led to focus in on genomics and computational biology. And, and you referenced earlier how much more certainty it gives you in a target if you've got things like strong genetic evidence that the that the gene is causal for the disease or you've got a really strong link through to the phenotype what what was that shift like what are the couple of things that you focused on from the start of that journey at abby to where where you ended up when you left well it's really a a, a journey that's gone on through my entire career very shortly after leaving you know academic training and and research at the mass general hospital here in boston so this is my second tour of duty in boston if you will I was involved in efforts to apply clinical genetics and genomics and expression profiling to drug discovery and development. This was in the early 2000s when the, the draft sequence of the human genome was available for the first time. And that was one human genome. We, we need thousands, if not millions of human genomes to make the kind of impact you want to have. And, and we now have that amount of information. And it was all part of a radical idea that instead of studying human disease in mice, we we're going to try to study it in humans. It makes perfect sense, but the tools had never been there to do it before. And so I think an evolution of that through the ability to learn to read the human genome and understand the cause of human disease is a natural extension to what we're doing, which is writing in the human genome to then correct those risk factors, to correct those underlying drivers of disease, because our DNA is the core driver of health and disease. And so I think it's a very natural progression. And I've I, I've, I've been involved in that at each of the companies that I've, that, I've, that I've been fortunate to be a part of. And I think Tessera and what's going on in genetic medicine is, is really in many ways the culmination of that. I mean, I think, you know, if one thinks about productivity in our industry, there are enormous waves of productivity that happen when, when new technologies become available. Even if you go sort of all the way back to, you know, the 80s and early 90s when the tools of modern medicinal chemistry really became mature. There was a huge wave of productivity and it built household names, you know, companies like Merck and Pfizer and, and so many others, because people could do things they just couldn't do before. Then if you think about the revolution that came after, the tools of molecular biology became broadly used and the engineering of therapeutic monoclonal antibodies became a real possibility. Again, it built another, you know, set of household names and created another wave of productivity. I think genetic medicine has the potential to do that again, but to do it to even a greater extent, because now we're talking about the ability ability to cure virtually any genetic disease and to address the risk factors for common disease. And, and, And a word that I used just a second ago 
is not often used in medicine, which is cure, right? Because right. the reality is there are up to the present, there are only a handful of cases where we can really think about curing chronic or life-threatening diseases, but that's going to become possible with the tools of genetic medicine. So I think there's a, a huge revolution in front of us. And I think, you know, it's been a logical progression to get us to this point. And we're now going to see, we're now going to see the returns in terms of productivity and a dramatic change to the way medicine is practiced. Yeah. When I was preparing for this episode and, and learning more about you all, one of the things that popped into my mind pretty quickly was, as I mentioned before, I did my PhD in rare developmental disorders. And there are many, literally thousands of haploinsufficient genes where if you have two copies, you're absolutely fine. If you lose a copy, then you have a devastating, in this case, you know, neurological developmental disorder, but these genes are present in every area of human biology. And, and it struck me, this struck me as a great opportunity. When I was doing my PhD, I always scratched my head a little bit to think of how you would treat a disease like this because you, you know, how do you introduce a healthy copy of the gene that's been knocked out? There's not, you, you'd have to get really lucky to have a small molecule or something that could amp the one healthy copy enough to yeah. work and in the right tissue. And so I, I know there's probably delivery challenges, timing challenges, but this in and of itself seems like an enormous area of unmet need that you all could could go after and have a big impact. Yeah, the opportunity is is absolutely enormous. And it 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 you know sounds like science fiction in a way, but the ability to cure virtually any genetic disease and to address the risk factors for for common disease is not science fiction, it's science. And it's something that we're advancing rapidly. And I think we're going to see a dramatic change in, in, in how we think about the practice of medicine. I mean, if you, if you come back, you know, it's been 20 years, a little more, since the first draft sequence of the human genome. And the progress that's been made is just mind-boggling in terms of the amount of sequence information that's available. It, it outpaces Moore's Law in computing. The ability to make sense of that information, which was very, very challenging in the early days. And we're just coming up on the top of that wave in genetic medicine, we're actually moving faster than we did with reading the genome in terms of writing the genome. But if you come back and look at this field in 20 years, I think it's going to change the way medicine is practiced. And it's going to change the way we think about debilitating, life-shortening, life-threatening diseases like the ones you're describing, like the ones you studied during your PhD. And so it's really an exciting time to be doing what we're doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think I think that's a great note to end on, Mike. It's one that's optimistic, but I think totally realistic as well. And, you know, there are going to be bumps along the way and we're going to have to solve problems like delivery to every major organ system. But to me, they seem solvable. It's uh, it's a matter of time and getting as many smart brains in this industry as we can. It's been uh, great talking to you. And I agree. I think it's just a really exciting time for this field. Great. Well, thank you. And thanks everybody for tuning in. As always, we really appreciate any feedback you have. You can reach us anytime at podcasts at sonogenetics.com. We'd really appreciate, first and foremost, if you share this episode with a friend or colleague that you think would enjoy it. And we also really appreciate a five-star review. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>